Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Romans chapter 1. This chapter 1 will read um, the first seven verses where Paul speaks of the gospel of God concerning his son. Look at these seven verses as they relate to the resurrection of Christ. Romans 1 verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that in connection with um, Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism as it's been um, walking us through the, the humiliation and now the exaltation of Christ. Lord's Days 14 through 16 um, led us through the five stages of, of the humiliation of Christ, his birth, suffering, death, burial, and descent into hell. And then Lord's Day 17 through 19 will lead us through the four stages of Christ's exaltation, um, beginning this afternoon with uh, the resurrection. We come to that first point, that first part of the exaltation of, of Christ. And so what, we, what we're considering here is really the turning point in redemptive history. Christ has come into the world. He has suffered. Now God is going to exalt his son. Read with me uh, Lord's Day 17 Question 45, we'll read this responsively. It asks, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make a share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Congregation, you notice the, um, the catechism as it speaks to us about the resurrection of Christ, that it, it sort of skips over the actual event of the resurrection that goes straight to its benefits. It asks, how, how does the resurrection of Christ benefit you? That's a good question to ask. What I'd like to do this afternoon is, is um, first ground it in Paul's description of the resurrection in Romans chapter 1, and then having understood the way that, that Paul describes the resurrection, we'll move to look at the benefits that we receive as those who are united to this risen Savior as Paul unfolds those throughout the rest of, of the book of Romans. So we have just two very simple points this afternoon, the resurrection of Christ and the redemption of his people, resurrection and redemption. 
And look with me first at the resurrection of Christ, according to Romans chapter 1. Um, Paul is, is here introducing the gospel of God, which he says that he has been set apart to preach. And he describes it as that which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he then defines this gospel, this gospel that has been uh, proclaimed already in the Old Testament. He, he defines it as concerning God's son, verse 3, who was descended from David according to the flesh and then declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is here describing the gospel of God uh, in terms of, of the history of redemption. He, he's describing the gospel of God that was preached already beforehand in the Old Testament as Christ's descent according to the flesh and then his exaltation in power by the spirit of holiness. So it's this um, downward and then upward movement that We'll focus on this afternoon. Um, Luther described these verses as the Son's descent in weakness through the incarnation, verse 3, that his ascent to the revelation of his fullness in the resurrection. Verse 4, even uh, Luther speaks of of Christ's humanity here being completed and, and glorified in his resurrection. That's the, the same way that um, Voss or uh, Ritter Voss took these, these two verses. Gerhardus Voss saw verses 3 and 4 as, as being about the whole sweep of redemptive history. You can say Lord's Days 14 through 17. Christ's incarnation and suffering according to the weakness of the flesh and his glorious resurrection. He says the reference is to the two successive stages of Christ's life. Christ came into being as to his fleshly existence, and he was introduced by his resurrection into his glorified existence. Or Ritterboss said, flesh and spirit here in these two verses represent two modes of existence. On the one hand, that of the old age, which is characterized and determined by the flesh, On the other hand, that of the new creation, which is of the Spirit of God. And Paul says that Christ, the Son of God, descended from David according to the flesh. That's the the Greek word sarx, which which speaks of the the sphere of human existence, the the natural earthly order with all that is characteristic of it. Paul is speaking of, of the old age, which because of Adam's sin has been corrupted. It is weak. It is inclusive of death. That's the way that Paul speaks of of the humiliation of Christ. That's the way he speaks of the incarnation. Christ takes on human weakness. He, He enters into the corrupted order of things where death reigns. The corrupted order of things where there is um, human frailty and, and suffering, that the kinds of things that we've been considering in Lord's Days 14, 15, and 16, or the kind of thing that we uh, read and sang of from Psalm 88. Now, this is, Luther said, Christ's descent into that weakness. Or Richard Gaffin puts it a bit 
more academically, but I think quite comprehensively, saying the the full thought of verse 3 is that by the incarnation, the eternal Son of God entered into the sphere of of Sarks, the, the old aeon, the present evil age, and his personal incarnate mode of existence was conformed to, to the sarkic world order at birth, a fleshly and weak world order that is under the curse. But now in verse 4, by his resurrection, that the pre-existent son, having become incarnate in that old order, enters the sphere of the spirit, the, the new aeon, the coming age so that his personal incarnate mode of existence now is conformed to the pneumatic world, the the order of the spirit. Pneuma or pneumatic means means spirit um, or or of the spirit. That's the the spirit of holiness in verse 4. At his resurrection, Christ's incarnate bodily existence is transformed into conformity to the age of, of the Spirit, the new creation. Paul is here describing for us what took place in the resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit so thoroughly transformed him that his body, once having been characterized by the weakness of the old order of things, now is a spiritual body. That's how Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that his body was sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And we see the very same dynamic here in Romans 1. It is the spirit of holiness who declares him to be the son of God in power. And Christ already was the son, but now he is the son of God in power. And here he begins a new and unprecedented phase of, of divine sonship. The, the eternal Son of God who was born, lived, and died according to the flesh is now raised according to the Spirit and becomes what he was not before, the incarnate Son of God in power. He enters into a new mode of existence so that his resurrection marks the beginning of a new age, the age of the Spirit. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, an entirely new world order was being ushered in. That, by the way, is why the earth was covered in darkness as Christ hung on the cross, so that the light of that resurrection morn might usher in an entirely new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Though the new creation is not yet here in full, It already is in part through the resurrection of Jesus. He is the first fruits of the world to come. And Paul is making that point at the very beginning of of this unfolding of the gospel of God in the book of Romans because central to it, central to the, the gospel of God is the reality of the risen Christ. Ritterboss rightly said, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is the central event of redemptive history. And so as Paul speaks of this gospel that he has been set apart to preach, this gospel that that was revealed already in paradise, proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, he says, it is the gospel concerning the Son of God who became the Son of David according to weakness that he might be exalted in power by God's Spirit. 
And the fact that he says this is good news, that's the meaning of of the word gospel in verse 1. The fact that he says this is good news for us by by which we receive grace, verse 5, suggests that this transformation that took place at the resurrection of Christ is, is somehow something that you and I are implicated in. That's what Paul is going to spend the rest of of the book of Romans unpacking, how the resurrection of Christ spells the redemption of his people. And he does so in, in at least three ways. By union with the risen Christ, Paul will tell us that we are therefore justified. By union with the risen Christ, we are also sanctified. And by union with the risen Christ, we are or will be glorified. These three benefits come by virtue of our faith-wrought union with the risen Son of God. And so think with me first about um, justification. What is the, the connection between the resurrection of Christ and the justification of his people? Um, to justify means to declare righteous. It's interesting, as you think about the resurrection of Jesus, that that in many ways, his resurrection is his justification. It is God vindicating him and declaring him righteous. It is God saying, this man is not who the people said he was, but is righteous, and I am satisfied with his sacrifice. And his resurrection on the third day is the proof. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, that Christ was manifest in the flesh and then vindicated or literally justified by the Spirit. The Spirit who rose him from the dead proved that God was satisfied with the sacrifice he'd made and he was righteous. Gerhardus Voss said Christ's resurrection was God's de facto declaration of God in in regard to, to Christ being just. His quickening bears in itself the testimony of his justification. And so Christ, in his resurrection on the third day, is declared by God to be righteous. That might sound a little funny speaking of of the justification of Christ, but that's exactly what 1 Timothy 3.16 calls the resurrection. It is God's answer to the mockers in Psalm 22, to the mockers on Good Friday who said that God would not save him, who said that this man was a sinner. God raises him up and says, no, he is righteous. And the reason why Paul can say that this is good news for us is because we are united to him by faith. And so Paul can say, as he will in Romans 4, verses 24 and 25, that it will be accounted to us as righteousness who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 25 of Romans 4, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There you see made explicit this connection between the resurrection of Jesus and God's legal declaration of you and I as righteous. His resurrection not only testifies that he is righteous, but as you are joined to him by faith, God's declaration of him as righteous also applies to you. This is the beauty of union with Christ. 
that we are joined to him by, what's, by, by, by faith, and what's true of him is true of us. Question 45, he makes us share in the righteousness that he has obtained for us by his death and resurrection. So that when your conscience accuses you and, and points to those sins that you have committed, by faith you might be able to, to turn and point to the empty tomb. Well, Helmut Sabrakel said that, that um, to, the, to the one who has no peace but only terror in his conscience, the one who, who Satan continues to accuse, reminding you of your sins, let him turn about by faith and behold this surety as having risen from the dead, which is evidence of his perfect satisfaction. Let such a person who is tormented by conscience go to God and ask the Lord while pleading on the resurrection, are not my sins punished? Has not my guilt been atoned for? Has not my surety risen from the dead? You have justified Christ and I am found in him. Do you see why Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is good news? Do you see why immediately following that statement about the resurrection in Romans 1 verse 4, he says, through this we have received grace. And then he says to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, to all those who are united to Christ by faith, grace to you and peace. Do you know this grace and peace? Are you united to to the one who was risen from the grave, declared by God to be righteous, so that what's true of him is true of you by faith? Hear this good news. Acknowledge your sins and look to the one who paid for them by his death on the cross and was then raised by God, acknowledged to be sinless and therefore able to pay for your sins. You do not want to pay for them yourself. But trust in the one who bore the curse of our sins in his body on the cross, as as we heard last week, and as we sang from Psalm 88, who suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul to deliver you from the hellish anguish and torment that you otherwise deserve. Look to him by faith. Then consider how he not only makes you share in this righteousness that he's obtained for you by his death, But how his resurrection also means that having believed on him, you you may now walk in newness of life. This next benefit speaks of the connection between Christ's resurrection and our sanctification. Romans 4.25 speaks of of the resurrection and, and our justification. If you turn over to Romans 6, Paul makes clear this connection between the resurrection of Christ and the renewal or sanctification of his people. It says in Romans 6, verse 2, after asking, are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so Paul makes the, the statement that we have died to sin. Because verse 4, we are united to Christ not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. So that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul is speaking of a parallel between Christ being raised up from the power of death and the power of sin 
no longer reigning over us. Drawing a parallel between um, Christ being raised up from the power of death and the power of sin no longer reigning over you and I. And the, the connection is this, verse 10. Verse 10, it says that death no longer has dominion over Christ. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You see that at the end of, uh, end of verse 9, it says, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What is, what is Paul saying there in verse 10? What does Paul mean when he says that the death Christ died, he died to sin, and now he lives to God? How could Christ be said to have died to sin? Well, Paul is saying that as Christ's incarnate body lived in this present evil age, ruled by sin and, and characterized by death, that he was in some sense under its dominion. You see, in verse 9, he says that after being raised, death no longer had dominion over him. The implication is that at one time it did, when he died. Back in Romans chapter 5, it, it actually says that um, sin reigned in or, or through death. That's Romans 5.21, that sin reigned in death. And, and so if Jesus, according to verses 9 and 10, came under the dominion of death when he died... And if Paul says that sin reigned in death, then we can say in a sense that Christ came under the power of sin. Indeed, he became sin for us on the cross. That's, that's why he died. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, the innocent one was treated as guilty in order to bring pardon. The author of life came under the dominion of death to bring resurrection from it. The one in whom righteousness reigned entered the dominion of sin and death, although it had no rights over him, and by his death to sin, he vanquished its authority. Now, neither death nor sin has any dominion over him. Now, neither death nor sin has any dominion over him, and by union with Christ, the same is true of us. Verse 2, we too have died to sin by union with the one who vanquished its authority. So that verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead, no longer under the dominion of sin and death, so we too can walk in newness of life. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Question 45, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. In and by his resurrection, Christ vanquishes the authority of sin and death, having come under their power in the incarnation and in his crucifixion, but now their power is nullified so that sin does not have to have dominion over you. Jesus Christ was was set apart from the domain and dominion of sin in his resurrection. You could call that his, his um, sanctification, his being set apart from sin. And just as that is true of him, so all who are united to him by faith have also been sanctified or set apart from sin's dominion, enabled to walk in newness of life. 
so that we may now consider ourselves dead to sin. Verse 11. Does not reign in our mortal bodies, making us obey its passions. Verse 12. Because we are joined by God's Spirit to the one who is not under its dominion. This has implications for for the way that we live. So that just as as the sins that haunt you and, and accuse your conscience, you can turn to them and point to the empty tomb and Christ's resurrection as your justification, you can also do the same when those sins tempt you. When you're tempted for the hundredth time to fall into that same old sin that you keep falling into, you are able to point to the resurrection of Christ and say, Christ is risen, sin and death no longer have dominion over him. And since I am joined to him by faith, so that the life I now live, I live to God. I'm able to walk in newness of life. I'm under new authority. You cannot reign over me the way you once did. Do you believe that you have that kind of power by the Spirit of Christ over sin and temptation? Look to the risen Christ who has vanquished sin's authority. Point to the empty tomb and say, Sin, you will not have dominion over me. I've been given new life. Paul says this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. His power is justifying. Its power is sanctifying. And then lastly, its power is glorifying. Romans 8 verse 11 says, Because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15 says. So that he is, Romans 8, 29, the firstborn among many brothers. Just as he has been glorified, so we too will be glorified. Christ's resurrection is his glorification. As we saw in Romans 1 verse 4, he passes from the age that is characterized by the weakness of the flesh, he he passes from that into the age of the spirit that is characterized by power and by glory. And because we are united to him, we have in his resurrection a sure pledge that the same will happen to us, that his body is the first of an entirely new age. That just as, as he has been glorified, so ours will be. Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly bodies, our, our bodies of this present age characterized by weakness, he will transform them to the likeness of his glorious body. That same kind of transformation that takes place between Romans 1.3 and Romans 1.4 will be true of us. That is the promise of Christ's resurrection, a sure pledge to us of our blessed, glorious resurrection. Do you see the benefits of Christ's resurrection? Do you see why Paul says it is good news? And in fact, it's, it, it summarizes the contents of, of the gospel. He, he speaks of the gospel of God and he summarizes its contents with reference to this event, the resurrection. Because all that belongs to Christ in it belongs to us by faith. 
And so he says in Romans 1, 5, through Christ who was raised from the dead, we receive grace. And that grace which Paul is going to proclaim, he even says it, it will bring about the obedience of faith. For as we trust in what Christ has done in being raised from the dead, it teaches us to live already now in a way that is different. Because of the resurrection, we have been justified. Because of the resurrection, sin no longer has dominion over us, but we have been sanctified. And because of the resurrection, we have already a sure pledge and guarantee of life in glory. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, In Christ, the new creation has already invaded this present age. Which means that if we are united to him by faith, then then we live according to the standards of the new age. Not only uh, living for, for the hope just of this present age, not presenting our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 6, not uh, taking to ourselves those things that are characteristic of the old man and of the realm of sin and death, but recognizing the inheritance that is ours and living in light of it. Colossians 3, setting our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. This is what the resurrection of Jesus calls us to. Paul is saying it it, it changes everything about the way that we live. And so we must think often about what Christ has accomplished in rising from the dead. Thomas Brockle says that we should view Christ's resurrection both as an example and as a pattern. He says, Christ arose in the morning, so you and I ought to accustom ourselves to meditate on his resurrection as we awake. Let every occurrence of our waking up and rising out of bed stir us to rise with Christ. And as he arose on the first day of the week, so let us commemorate the resurrection of Christ each Sabbath day, uniting ourselves with him in the resurrection. Let it be a renewed revival of your spiritual life. That's what the Lord's day is to be, a renewed revival of your spiritual life. The church worships on the first day of the week because of the cataclysmic change that took place in the resurrection of Christ. And so every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, the day when we gather to celebrate Christ's victory over the grave as we heard in the call to worship from Psalm 118 that the stone the builders rejected, God has risen up and made him the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us rejoice and be glad in it and let this day be a renewed revival of our spiritual life so that as we gather to commemorate the resurrection of Christ, we are stirred by the promises of that resurrection to walk in newness of life and to lift our gaze heavenward from where we await a Savior who when he comes again will make all things new. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ arose by the spirit of holiness, that you declared him to be the Son of God in power, and that as we are united to him by faith, we share in that righteous verdict 
we share in his being set apart from the dominion of sin, and we'll also one day share in his glory. We pray that you would make us to be people who love the resurrection. We pray that you would make us to be people who glory in what Christ has done. That you'd make us to be people who think about it often so that when Satan tempts us to despair or tells us of guilt within, whether um, real or, or imagined, we may point to the empty tomb. Or when we are tempted to sin, we might recognize that, that that is not who we are anymore, but sin no longer has dominion over us. We must not give ourselves over to something that we have died to. But increasingly, our lives and our affections and our behavior are to be conditioned and characterized by the age to come. Help us by your Spirit each and every Resurrection Sunday, both morning and afternoon, to be more and more trained to live in light of the resurrection. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.